Welcome to the Purpose and Principles podcast. My name is Max Brown, and my guest today is Alessandro Di Fiore, and he is the founder and CEO at the European Center for Strategic Innovation, and he also runs a consulting group of the same name. He's the chairman of the board at Harvard Business Review in Italy and a member of the HBR Global Editorial Team. He has 25 years of experience in management consulting, and his consulting career has advised more than 25 of the Fortune 500 companies in several regions in the USA and Europe, particularly on strategy and organizational change and things that matter around how our businesses run. Uh, Alessandro, I'm super excited to have you on the show today to discuss specifically this new world we seem to be living in where freelancers are you know, all over the place. Social distancing has become the norm, although I kind of like to call it physical distancing rather than social distancing, uh, you know, for the reasons that you and I would agree on in terms of organizational design. And how does this impact culture? So, you know, what, it, what happens in this new way of working? So welcome to the show. Thank you, Max. Thank you for uh, having me here. It's so great. And I'm, I'm delighted that you're um, able to do things and, and still travel, you know, between countries and to be able to do your work from Italy and, and that you could join me from Italy today. With your global view and perspective of what people are dealing with in workplaces today, what are some of the common challenges that you're seeing in organizations, regardless of the location or the industry? All right, Max. Thanks. So thanks for inviting me again. And uh, I think that's a good uh, a good, excellent uh, starting question. So if you look at the different industries, also uh, Europe and uh, North America, mm-hmm. that's where I spend most of my business time. I Obviously, all the companies are suffering about financial, but this is related to the short-term COVID-19 crisis and uh, companies are dealing with their financial goals, etc. You know, if you look at more in the uh, today and also in the medium term, I think most of the companies, they are all asking themselves, how can I, in this uncertain, uh, complex and a volatile world, I can build an organization which is able to operate faster, mm-hmm. which is able to adapt in a more effective and rapid way to the shift in priorities, to the shift in market and also in uh, external shocks, like, for example, the one we are assisting today with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So everybody would like to have a company like that. So if you ask uh, anybody, any leader, they say, yeah, I would like to, I I will dream to have a company able to operate faster, more efficiently, with more ability to shift in terms of changing priorities, rapidly, effectively, where the people is involved, and also the customer is at the center. So that's the Mm -hmm. dream everybody as um, uh, across the board, across regions, across the industries. And when you think about the agility and the ability to be able to respond to different markets or different demands, how, how do we foster that kind of an environment in an, in an organization? Um, because like you said, I, I feel the same way. A lot of people are looking for opportunities and ways to be more capable of shifting when they need to shift and changing when they need to change. Mm-hmm. But it's harder to do uh, than just declaring it, isn't it? Oh, of course. That's uh, If you think about a few companies who have been able to transform and reorganize agile, mm-hmm. I'm not talking about startup. I'm not talking about technology companies. Most of the technology companies, they were born and they grew with an agile organizational and operating model. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the few companies in other industries who moved to agile, they've been doing much better during the COVID-19. 
Mm-hmm. And, and why they've been doing much better? Because they were able to adapt and shift the organization to the new priorities. Mm-hmm. And what that means, Max, is not only that I am a team-based organization. That's one component. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. I am organizing the organization in teams and the teams, they have autonomy and they have accountability. And so they are able to change their priorities in a much quicker and a more effective way because it's not a top-down hierarchical model. That's one important component. The other component, if you think about is the some of the key processes. If you think about strategic planning and budget, and you do the strategic planning, some companies, they still do three years, five years, and the budget is very rigid. So you take a shock like a COVID-19, or you take a shock like uh, market changes due to customer needs, mm-hmm. and you need to reallocate the budget. You need to reallocate resources, but the budget is rigid. So to do a real uh, agile organization is, is about people, is about organizational design, but it's also about redesigning some of the key processes that we create, and those processes, they create rigidity. Mm-hmm. So if you think about this, this is a transformation, and that's why it's difficult to do. Because when you need to design and then implement a transformation, there are a lot of risk perceived, particularly by, from the leadership, and uh, not necessarily all the leadership has the ambition and the courage to do it. And that's why we see some of those agile transformations to be uh, just on paper, but no, uh, there is uh, less of a worth the talk in terms of a real execution down in the, in, in the organization. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, as you mentioned, there is a there is a reluctance to make that change sometimes, and it's and sometimes it's merited because they're you know they have natural fears of their own job and their own security, mm-hmm. and so they're they're they want to protect that, and and there's not a lot of incentive for taking risk, right? And so not for them all. to make that change has to be it has to be a brave movement, right? That they have to have a lot of courage as a leader to be able to make some of those changes that that they might not feel very uncomfortable taking at the time. Absolutely, Max. If uh, I think about the barriers to change, of uh, at least this type of change, leadership is probably top of the list, yeah. and particularly leadership behavior. And there is no incentive to take risk. That's on one side. Uh, on the other side, you know, if you think about the leadership uh, in such a model, it should change radically. The leader is less the person who is uh, uh, dictating to a team what to do and uh, making the decisions or a subject matter expert. So that's a, that's the image of a leader, right? Mm-hmm. And it is more like a servant leader, more like a coach, and the decisions that are taken down in the organization at team level or uh, two or three levels down in the organization. And that change, obviously, is uh, not only is a risk or perceived as a risk, but also from an ego standpoint, is really attacking at the core of how a leader is, uh, he is perceiving um, himself or herself mm-hmm. uh, in, uh, in, the, in the projection of um, his, her image in the organization. So that's difficult. So we really need leaders with that aspiration, that vision, that courage. On the other side, if you think about the companies, uh, Max, mm-hmm. uh, do you want a company today in this environment, in the future environment, uh, with a digital transformation, with the volatility? You want a company bureaucratic, which is slow in making decisions, is slow in acting, is slow in changing priorities? I don't think that is sustainable anymore. Mm-hmm. So to some extent, yep, 
they needed to do it. It's difficult to do it. They see risk. They fear it. But no, it's a must. So I think at the end, the organizations uh, will go through it, will need to go through. Otherwise, you know, you have a, uh, you have a problem in, a, in a sustainability and, uh, and, uh, and survive to this kind of environment. In addition to agile and being able to make change quickly, there are other challenges around culture and encouraging cultures of, and, and new behaviors within the organization as part of that. Why is it so, why is it so challenging, in your opinion, to get culture right? Um, and I, I say that in terms of it's very difficult, even though there's a body of work that for decades has mentioned, you know, that a good culture actually helps produce better results. We retain people better. There's a lot of research to support the fact that encouraging a good culture, a healthy culture, is wise to do. Why is it still so difficult to get that right, despite this well, knowledge? So let's, uh, changing culture is difficult, Max. Mm. If you think about what is a culture, I like the analogy with the sedimentary rock, mm-hmm. right? So what is, a, what is a culture? It's a set of assumptions on how to behave or how to make decisions in a company. Mm-hmm. The set of assumptions, if you think about it, is a layer after layer after layer, like a sedimentary rock, which are fundamentally... Uh, there is a process of a cementation in the ears, mm-hmm. and then that makes a, that makes a culture. So culture, is like a rock, is a solid. Yeah, so it's a difficult to change. And uh, in, in the organization, the sedimentation is not about small particles, but the sedimentation is about behaviors, and those behaviors are coming from the leaders. So if you look at the uh, leader behavior and the leader is acting or behaving in a certain way, okay, that is feasible, I can do it, and uh, that becomes an unwritten rule and assumption. So that's why it's difficult to change culture. But the problem, I think the biggest problem, is that the companies, if uh, I look back, have been doing consulting uh, 20 year, 25 years back. And uh, 25 years ago, the cultural change program was more or less like this. A small group of people, usually someone from HR and a few senior managers, they were designing a set of a value, mm-hmm. set of a values, and this was becoming the manifesto. And then there was an incredible communication and the mobilization initiative down in the ranks. Mm-hmm. So there was uh, someone who was saying, okay, those are the principles and the values. And then there was a communication effort. And if you look now, after 25 years, my experience have been going through and observing so many of those changes, cultural initiatives, they all failed. Mm-hmm. They all failed. The process is the same. And the process has not changed. And you can be nicer and more fancy your communication process in, a, in the, your media campaign inside, but no, they all failed. And the reason why they failed, Max, and this is my observation because I've been observing this in over... 25 years is because when you start something like this and the visible leader of level one, level two, or level three of a large organization is having a behavior which is different from the manifesto, which has been communicated broadly, people will not believe in it anymore. Actually, the organization will start to become cynical. Mm -hmm. So it's even worse. So my advice to leaders, don't do it. Unless 
unless you start in a different way. You create a social contract among the leaders, not only the CEO, the, but at least a level one and level two, you create a social contract about the behaviors you want to keep and the behaviors you want to discontinue. And that's a social contract. And the social contract is reinforced and then eventually cascaded in the organization. So it's not a communication exercise, but it's about the leaders and not only the CEO who need to do that new social contract. And they need to do the work, the talk. Uh, so that's a different way of approaching it, which has been more successful in my experience. But no, companies are still doing this communication cascading exercise, which is, uh, which is incredible because it's also creating a cynicism in the organization and not changing the culture. Yeah, I've, I've experienced the same thing. Um, and I understand exactly what you're saying, particularly around the cynicism at frontline level employees who feel like every management change brings a new marketing campaign for a new leadership concept, but they just think that it will only last as long as that manager's in place. And then the next manager comes in two or three years and they start all over again. And so these frontline managers or these frontline employees get quite cynical, they get tired, they get burned out, and they just say, well, we'll just wait them out. We'll just wait till they shift out and, and they rotate to the next location. And yet what we're talking about is we hope managers would actually model the behavior that we would like mm -hmm. to see and change and then have a system that supports that to create the sustainable change and allows them to build credibility and trust with the employees that they're actually hoping to affect and change. Absolutely, Max. And one of the uh, very simple tools we use to successful in some companies mm -hmm. to model the behavior and to enforce it is uh, something we call circle of behaviors mm -hmm. or circle of a compliance where a number of uh, peer leaders, they meet on a monthly basis mm -hmm. and they discuss among them about what they observed each other in terms of uh, practicing and uh, role modeling uh, some behaviors or not doing something they decided or not doing. Or, and, and that is a very simple tool uh, where you need uh, uh, some good facilitation uh, but no, it's a one way to enforcing. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's about thinking ways to go beyond the communication exercise mm -hmm. and institu institutionalizing behaviors. And as a, you, know, you mentioned, Max, behaviors of the leaders and culture are two phases of the same coin. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, uh, the lever is the behaviors of the leaders. Mm -hmm. The end result is that maybe you will have an impact on the overall organizational culture mm -hmm. if mm -hmm. the leaders they are doing it right let's uh, boy i mean i totally agree and if they model it they do it they get that credibility like you discussed we hold people accountable to it so we're actually doing it so people trust that we're actually making these changes what about this new this new opportunity if you will where we're getting a lot more people in the freelance economy and remote workers who now impact the culture making this perhaps even more complicated because there's a lot of people out there providing freelance services to a lot of organizations. What are the opportunities for leaders in this new environment where a lot of the economy is led by freelance? Max, I think the pandemic and the COVID-19 has mm -hmm. obviously created and is creating a lot of challenges for companies, but to some extent is also creating some opportunities. And uh, opportunity 
to rethink about the uh, way of working, mm -hmm. but also opportunity to rethink about uh, the workforce. And, uh, and one of those opportunities is related to the freelancing economy. Mm -hmm. And the freelancing economy and the gig economy is not new. It's been around for at least 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been growing, particularly in the last five, five years. It's expected to be about 18 billion uh, in terms of volume, 18 billion uh, dollars here in, uh, in a couple of years. And it's mostly related to digital skills and um, and the creative multimedia skills. There are also other skills, but no, those two skills, they make uh, roughly 70% of uh, the freelancer uh, community uh, out there. So now you think about companies that they are talking about liquid workforce. I don't know if you heard the concept. Uh, Accenture has been the first one to um, no, uh, present this concept. So liquid workforce is... Um, is, is a broad concept, right? But no, there is one component of the liquid workforce is how do you integrate freelancers in your workforce? And, it's, uh, and, and, and the, the step from a tactical use of freelancers to a use which is a strategic and integrated in your workforce planning, I think that's the big difference. And the pandemic that has demonstrated the possibility to work remote effectively also in teams and also in agile teams, as have been fun fundamentally the discontinuity that uh, will allow companies now to say, okay, if I need a digital profile, I don't need to have a digital profile in Boston because my company in Boston, I can take uh, that digital profile from everywhere in the world as long as it's matching the skill and uh, we can work remote. Because up to today, there was a barrier. So if we remove that barrier, if you think about it, you go one of those, uh, any of those uh, freelancing platforms, yeah? It can be Upwork, it can be freelancers.com, it can be Geekster, there are a number of freelancing platforms. can be Topcoder. Uh, most of them, uh, they have uh, 10 times, 20 times the number of uh, coders, uh, software engineers of uh, Microsoft. And you go on one of them, yeah? And, and so the point is, why not you rethink about the gig economy instead of doing the translation, instead of doing the quality testing or the coding, you think about creating a flexible workforce where you integrate fully in your workforce planning this channel together with the vendors and together with your hiring channel. And this is what the most pioneering companies are doing. Unilever in, in Europe, they, are, they have a goal of having any point in time 4,000 freelancers used globally. We are talking about 4,000 people. So you understand the different ambition. I'm not anymore doing the gig here and there. Mm -hmm. I'm integrating a flexible extended workforce. Also, they are going to create what we call talent clouds. Mm -hmm. So they fundamentally on a specific, for example, digital skills. It can be a solution architect on a technology, they decided to create a cloud of freelancers who work more frequently with them and they are pre-vetted and pre-qualified that they can be flexibly used any point in time you have a peak in terms of demand in the company. So it does, so they create a number of clouds around profiles and that means you are completely changing the game. So you are creating a liquid for, workforce, extendable, uh, can manage the peaks, you can uh, source people from Philippines, India, Pakistan, 
uh, Eastern Europe or wherever that profile is, probably also a lower cost, and you can onboard someone in a matter of days. If you need to hire, it's probably three months. If you need to look for a vendor, it's probably a couple of months with a request for proposal scope of work. If you go on a platform like this, you are doing the matchmaking, and probably in two, three days, you have someone in your agile team onboarded, particularly if you are in digital skills. Mm-hmm. I think this is fantastic. And the companies, again, is like agility. They know about the gig economy. They don't have the ambition to go it. Only a few companies are going there full speed. One is Unilever, Samsung, for example, uh, G, they are going there, and obviously the technology companies. So Microsoft and Amazon and those ones, they know how to use the freelancing economy. Mm-hmm. And how are they going to influence these folks in the future? How Do they just focus on their internal full-time teams in terms of their culture, because this is an outside vendor, if you will? Or how are they trying to influence and retain great people in an organization where most people have that choice or don't feel affiliated, that direct affinity to the organization? Actually, uh, I think it's a two-part question. The first one, the more you work with the people from outside in teams, so for example, you have a digital team working agile Mm -hmm. and you are onboarding your uh, uh, eight, nine people team, you're onboarding a, a couple of freelancers from a different culture, different background. So I think there is a contamination of, uh, uh, of a culture there. And wh- wherever there is a contamination, that is good. Okay, so that's that's one part. The second part is uh, the concept I mentioned you, Max. Uh, so if you create a talent cloud, it's not that you are searching blind into millions of people on a freelancing platform. So you're creating your cloud of 50, 100 people on a specific skill of freelancers who are vetted, you know, you have been working with them, you know they fit very well, and you created that sense of community. Some companies, for example, with those talent clouds, also they do an annual event to create a sense of community. So you are not on the payroll, you are still a freelancer, but you are... Like in the second circle, you are part of the company and the companies are making an effort to keep you in that community or feeling you part of that community, plus you know, creating a more you know, frequent cash flow business because you are in the talent cloud. I think that's a nice model that provides the best of flexibility on one side, but also some sense of a community and the closeness to the company and the way you're working with the company over the freelancers. And I see more and more companies going in that way. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting piece. And of course, like you said, it's been around for a while. I think it's been exacerbated with the changes and the physical distancing that we're all experiencing. Um, do you find that there are certain differences in the way companies are being managed and run in Europe as opposed to your experience with U.S. companies? Or do you find that they're getting closer and closer in terms of management styles? What are maybe some of the distinctions and characteristics you would say are a little bit different? Max, I think Europe is... Uh is not uniform. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So if you take uh, the Anglo-Saxons or you take UK and Netherlands or you take the Nordic and uh, central countries, you take uh, Southern Europe like uh, Italy and France. Yes. I think in Europe there are different cultures um, and different, uh, no, slightly different ways of management style. Uh, so if I do the comparison with United States, you know, let's take Germany, for example, which is the most important uh, economy in, 
in in Europe. So in Germany, I think the biggest difference is uh, that the decision making is uh, more democratic, and 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 uh, that's part of the culture, but it's also part of the fact that the unions, uh, even in large companies, you know, they have uh, representatives in uh, both in the executive board and also in a number of uh, different councils for making decisions, particularly decisions related to the way we're working, but also decisions related to some of the investments. So that's part of the fabric of uh, uh, the way the economy and the businesses operate, but it's also part of the culture. So it's a less, uh, and they take more time. Yeah? Compared to the United States, no, no, it's difficult to generalize, but no, generally speaking, they take, take more time to make a decision compared to US company. Uh, but when they make a decision, oh, there is a, the alignment and execution, uh, uh, they are pretty quick and, and effective. Uh, I think that's, then, then if I do a comparison with Italy, my country is probably, um, no, again, there are other differences. But no, if uh, there are small differences, Max. I think a capitalism and uh, being in a capitalistic uh, um, country, uh, no, I think we still have, no, uh, kind of a slaving to the stock exchange. You need to do the quarterly. I see all that issues across mm-hmm. the boards and uh, no, with some slight changes. But no, I, I think I compared to Japan, uh, I think th- those are real differences. But no, between Europe and US, I think there are small differences. So if you were onboarding a new American employee uh, that was going to come over and do some work for you in uh, some of your European clients... What would you tell that American employee to be mindful of? Yeah, probably uh, the only piece of advice uh, would be that in Europe, uh, the culture, particularly in some countries, is more uh, um, direct and mm-hmm. open and frank. So all these uh, elements of uh, checking on language or checking on the way you're expressing ideas for political correctness is... Uh, uh, slightly less relevant from a cultural standpoint, mm-hmm. particularly when you express ideas. Yeah, we're not talking about gender diversities or other situations like this. And the way you express ideas is, uh, you know, most of the countries, most of the companies is more frank, open, candid debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would, my advice will be open up, express yourself in a constructive way, but no, express yourself. Don't, uh, don't uh, retain yourself, yeah? That's what, what's your point? I would say, what, what do you want to say? Yeah, yeah get it out. <laughs> get it out, yeah. Tell me. <laughs> Let's talk about that a little bit from a cultural perspective of what would you tell someone who's working right now? We have a lot of listeners out there wondering about, gosh, I'm really excited, but my company feels like something Alessandro's just described. It's very hard to make changes here. In fact, I feel like I'm working in a stagnant or even a toxic culture. And for me, in general, as I've traveled around the globe, I find that toxic cultures are not exclusive to any one country or one place. The culture of, the, of that organization might be stagnant or toxic, but it doesn't describe one culture or one place. It really is dependent on the organization. Do you find that to be true as well? And what would you tell listeners? Yeah. What would you tell listeners yeah. who happen to be in one of those organizations? Let's make an example, uh, Max. So yep. I am the CEO of a new company. So this is a large company. So I'm the CEO. I'm there working in this 
this new company and I observed the culture. And, uh, and then I have uh, three options. The first option is I want to evolve and change the culture. It means that my assessment, uh, there are some good pieces and good elements in that culture, but no others I want to change or other principles and elements I want to add. Yeah? So this, uh, in this scenario is exactly what we mentioned before. So we need to architect a cultural change initiative. Yeah? Uh, the, the second scenario is I give up. No, I'm a new leader and I just give up. So it's me as a CEO, I am adjusting to the culture of the company because I believe it's right. I think it's 90% right and I need to adjust my 10, 20% from a personal style, personal value because that culture is working and performing. Yeah? Mm-hmm. The third one is a toxic culture. And if you are a CEO, you enter in a toxic culture. I don't think that you have an option to give up. I don't think you have a, an option of changing and evolving. The only option is you destroy the culture. And the way you destroy culture, because you want to destroy to rebuild a new one, a completely new one. And the way you destroy culture is fundamentally you change your first and probably a good part of your second line of management. Mm-hmm. And that's what some of the leaders have been doing. If I think about uh, uh, Sergio Marchione of Fiat Chrysler, when he was appointed, he passed away, yeah? Mm-hmm. But he was a great CEO. But when he was appointed as a CEO of Fiat, Fiat was losing 5 million euros per day. Yeah? And, and the culture was a culture of uh, bureaucracy, slow decision-making, uh, formality, uh, so nothing fitting with the mandates and the requirements of the automotive, global automotive industry. So fundamentally fired most of the people reporting to him and uh, first line and good part of the second line. And he took some people from the second line or third line and they, he promoted yeah, some of the new young chickens. But fundamentally changed. He was destroying and rebuilding the culture. Mm-hmm. So if you're in a toxic situation, I don't think you can really evolve. Mm-hmm. Most of the cases, so probably you need to do something like that, something that is more radical. Yeah, and 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 drastic steps are required. Uh, what would you do if you're a listener who is not the CEO? So coming back to the maybe that first question of a listener who's listening today and says, "Oh man, you've just described the organization I'm working in. What can you do other than leave the organization?" Uh, what would you recommend for those who are hearing something but feel like, wow, I don't have a lot of places to go in this organization, but I would like to see if there's something other than leaving? Yeah, other than leaving, uh, which is uh, option one. But no, if you cannot do that, and or you cannot do that in the short term, what you can try to do is in your department, your organizational unit, at least if you have a influence uh, if you are able to do influence or if you are able to make some decisions, mm-hmm. you can try to create a, an environment which is a little bit like a hotbed, right? Try to take that unit and isolate it from the rest of the company and try to, on that unit, on that organizational unit, to build a different culture mm-hmm. because you are the manager of the unit. You are, with your behaviors, fundamentally setting the role model. And that, but at that point, you as a manager of the unit, you need to be the umbrella and uh, uh, fundamentally umbrella versus the rest of the organization in this isolation. 
So that's that will be my. If you are just an employee, is very difficult. It's very difficult. Mm-hmm. No, it is. And and being aware of whether you're part of the problem or whether you're part of the solution, I think, is a big deal. So, of like you said, like you mentioned, you know, if 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 I can't leave or if leaving isn't the solution, then how I show up matters every single day, and I make that choice. I make that choice whether I'm going to be positive, whether I'm going to influence my team to be positive, or whether I would just add to the anger and frustration of the team yeah. as well. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yes. What would you say people are doing that they might be taking for granted? So leadership is very difficult. There's lots of priorities. You know, a lot of people need to do a lot of things in a short amount of time, uh, particularly in a rapid, you know, quarterly reports and, and, and the way we have to achieve our numbers and our KPIs. What are our leaders taking for granted that they should be more thoughtful about? I think you mentioned, Max, you know, we, uh, if we think about some of the management innovations of um, 50 years ago or even more, like the strategic planning, like the management of your objectives, mm-hmm. like uh, organizing the company by function or by business unit. So all those are great innovations in terms of a management ideas and management practices. Some of them are, uh, they trace back 50 years ago, some of them 30 years ago, but no, they are, they've been there for a number of years. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And all those management ideas, they were born in a world that was more stable, where it does make sense to have a strategic plan at five years or 10 years, because then you can do CapEx planning because then you can set your annual goals and your annual goals are stable and not going to change. You can have also your performance related to your annual goals and your organization can be focused on a specific business line. All that, I think leaders and companies need to realize that context is change. Mm -hmm. And the context is changing. So they give for granted some great management innovations. They are less applicable or not applicable at all because the context in today's world is changed. So all those fantastic uh, uh, processes like strategic planning, like budgeting, like uh, the management by objectives uh, and uh, the way you organize uh, the company, all those, they need to be under discussion you no know, under the review and you no know, if you if you are a large company you are you don't have an initiative looking at those things there is a problem mm-hmm. yeah so there is a lot of review that has to happen and i agree with you i think that the way some of our senior leaders learned their leadership skills compared to what there's required now uh in in today's in today's industry and the requirements that are required to be successful and competitive in many ways have evolved and the new those leaders have to embrace that change in order to be successful going forward. Uh, it, thank you for sharing that. You know, as we wind this up, is there anything else you wish you would have known earlier in your career? And maybe as part of that, do you have a piece of advice that you would share with those who are out there leading today uh, based on this discussion? On, on, the, on the first question, I... When I started my career, Max, obviously a lot of mistakes and uh, and learning, uh, particularly in the initial uh, 
10 years of my career. If there is only one point, uh, if I can take only one point, is the ability to embrace the view and uh, the perspective of other people. So it's uh, which has to do with the listening skills, which has to do with uh, shouting your mouth and trying to listen and understand before jumping uh, and speaking uh, with uh, your ideas or your your opinion. Yeah, I think that took me a significant number of years to learn as a lesson. Uh, on on the second question, uh, Max. Uh, I think the advice for someone uh, who is starting the career now, or even someone who is mid of the career, is even if you don't have a computer science degree, we don't want you to be a software engineer or information technology architect. But no, even if you don't have a computer science degree, you should read, read, and read about technology, new trends, and um, and all the evolutions uh, related to the new uh, technologies. And this is true for everybody, Max. You can be an employee and you will be impacted as user, or you can be a leader. And to be a good leader today is not enough to be a good business leader. Mm-hmm. You also need to be a good digital leader. And to be a good digital leader, again, it's not about engineering a code. It's about being able to understand the strategic implication and to do the right question, to, to do the right questions to your chief information officer, officer or digital officer, to make the right decisions together. I think if you don't have the minimum understanding uh, in today's world, that's a, that's a must. I think that would be my advice. Learn, 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 learn. Yeah, and I think that's good advice for all of us. You know, I, I the the my best leaders, the people that have inspired me the most, are always listening and learning and asking great questions and seeking to understand. Right, as we learned many many years ago in uh, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits, but to seek to understand before we try to go out and preach and teach. <laughs> yes, Alessandro, thank you for joining me today. Uh, I've really enjoyed getting to know you better, and uh, I appreciate what you do, and I am grateful that you could join me. Thank you, Max. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me here. Absolutely. To all our listeners out there, thank you for listening today on the Purpose and Principles podcast. Be safe and be wise, and we'll uh, see you the next time on another episode of Purpose and Principles podcast. Thank you.